All right. Why don't you turn to Daniel chapter 9, please. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 24 to 27. And the message entitled, Palm Sunday Foretold. The Bible has always been attacked by those who do not believe in God, declaring that the Bible is a mere book like any other one, written by religious people, and really has nothing supernatural uh, in its content. It's just a book like any other. Yet prophecy is the declaration of something happening before it happens, so when it happens, you know only God could have told it. Because you and I don't even know what we're going to do the next 60 seconds ahead of us, let alone... Uh, and sometimes even our pastor's kind of foggy, and we've been there. Um, God is the only one that can tell the future. Um, J. Barton uh, Payne, in his book, The Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, defined uh, prediction of biblical prophecy as the following. Quote, a prediction is an announcement more or less specific of the future. It is a miracle of knowledge, a declaration or representation of something future beyond the power of human sagacity to discern or to calculate. So God is the only one who knows the future. Many people will say, well, this guy can, you know, tell you the future. No, nobody can. There's a lot of charlatans. There's a lot of people that deal with demons, familiar spirits, wizards, the occult. They can kind of pinpoint generally, but not specific, and they don't know the future. Only God knows the future. Daniel, as you know, was seeking God um, in prayer, knowing that the captivity was almost up, according to Jeremiah. And um, God sent Gabriel, the angel, to give him understanding and knowledge about the 70th week of Daniel. What we'll do is we'll focus on the first 69 weeks that predict the first coming and the entry of the Messiah on Palm Sunday. But I'm going to just give you the last week there because it's tied together so you understand how it hooks together. But prophecy of the arrival of the Messiah here in our text, um, as he comes to Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, uh, let me read our text, verse 24 down to 27. He says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offerings. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. That last verse, verse 27, is the Antichrist in the tribulation period, and we'll mark that as we go through there. So our focus will be on the first 69, but here we have the prophecy of the arrival of the Messiah to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and it's characterized as the following. First, we have the particulars of the prophecy in verse 24. Very important as we mark those, okay? Second, you have the particular time of the prophecy in verse 25. And then thirdly, the particular fulfillment 
of the prophecy in verse 26 and 27. 27 is the tribulation. We'll, we'll mark that when we get there. So let's begin here with the particulars of the announcement. Verse 24, you have the same Bible I do. You should always have it open. You should be able to follow me verse by verse. You should be able to kind of go, know where we're going. And so it's nothing that we're just, we're not pulling rabbits out of a hat here. Verse 24, notice the period of time of the prophecy is stated. Seventy weeks. Your Bible says seventy weeks? That's what mine says, okay? The phrase is literally seventy in multiples of sevens, as we will see evident as we move through, okay? The total will end up being 490 years, which will coincide with the Sabbath weeks that they didn't let the land rest. Seventy times seventy they give them captivity, it's 490 years, okay? And that's why I put them in captivity. Now, notice secondly, the people involved in the prophecy are who? The Mexicans? The Americans? The Ruskies? No, the Jews. For your people. Context. You can't give it to anybody else. It's the Jews. Daniel was a Jew taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, the first siege, 606 B.C. The people of Daniel, the Jews, were taken in three sieges, 606, 596, 586. Okay? Sometimes you'll have them do it a year before, you'll hyphenate it, whatever. I'm not going to argue it, okay? I just round them off. It's easy to remember. The older I get, I go for things like that, okay? Now, thirdly, the place for the prophecy is what? New York? Jerusalem. For your holy city. Your holy city. Your, Daniel, Jew, Jerusalem, right? Context, context, context. Jerusalem is called the city of God, therefore it is to be holy. Jerusalem is often said to be the holy city of the Jews. You find it all over. Uh, Nehemiah 11, 1 and 18. Isaiah 52, 1. Matthew 4, 5. Matthew 27, 53. Revelation 11, 2, just to mention some. You have the holy city, you have the holy land, you have the holy mountain, the holy people. Okay? <laughs> they all go together, like peanut butter and and, and, and jam. Look at 24 still. The purpose of the prophecy is a two-fold um, fulfillment clearly stated here. The first part of the prophecy deals with victory over sin. This is the first coming of Christ. Now follow with me. It says, to finish the transgression. That refers to bringing to an end to restrain and restrict the transgression of Adam. Adam brought sin in, and through sin came death, Romans 5.12, and passed on to all men, okay? In fact, 1 John 3.8 says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil, okay? So, Jesus knocked all of Satan's teeth out. All he can do is gum you, okay? He can't bite you if you're a child of God, all right? You belong to Christ. Secondly, to make an end of sins, plural. This refers to the atonement of, for the sins of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God did for us what we could never do for ourselves, Okay? Thirdly, to make reconciliation for iniquity by being the propitiation for the sins 
of the people. Now again, he's talking about the Jew, but the extension of atonement came you and I, Gentile, right? Salvation is for all, okay? Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the world. The word propitiation has to do with satisfying God's wrath by the right offering. It goes back to the animal sacrifice. God uh, killed an innocent animal in Genesis 3.21 to atone for the sins of Adam and Eve and cover their nakedness. All the Levitical sacrifices was blood the token for sin? Absolutely. Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you for atonement on the horns of the altar. The blood of Jesus Christ forgives us from all sin. Precious blood, Peter says. Okay? So the token is clear all the way through. So, and the word propitiation has to do not only for satisfaction, but it's applicable to the whole world, not just the chosen frozen. Because 1 John 2, 2 says this, And God made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin. But he says he's the propitiation not only for our sins, okay? 1 John 2, 2. Not only our sins, ours is the Christian, already saved, but also the sins of the whole world. So, if you believe that God chose only a few, you believe in the doctrine of Calvinism, how do you explain just that verse? There's many others. He died for the whole world. And people get to decide whether they believe he died for them or not. The choice is upon the individual. The rejection is not by God. The rejection is by man against what God did for them. That's where the rejection comes. Now, notice... The second part comes of the prophecy. It deals with establishing the kingdom at the second coming. So up to this point in your verses there is the first coming. We've already seen the three things. Notice to bring in the everlasting righteousness. The key is everlasting righteousness. Is it here now? No. There's so much evil in the world. Okay. This is the kingdom age. That he's talking about. So there's a separation between the first coming and the second coming here. Next he says to seal up vision and prophecy. Meaning fulfilling the whole of scripture. Now Jesus Christ fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his first coming. But there's many more to be fulfilled. Okay. So here in this verse you have the separation between the first and the second coming. By what is being declared. Okay. Then to anoint the most holy the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Lord of Lord and King of Kings. That didn't happen the first coming. It happens the second coming. The particulars of the prophecy involve no one except the Jews, Jerusalem, the nation of Israel. No one else. Okay? By extension, the forgiveness applies to everybody. But the prophecy is dealing with the Jews and Jerusalem. Jerome tells us that in his day, there was already about nine different interpretations. And people get into all kinds of stuff. You know, they'll get into a spiritualized. Well, here, right here, it says, you're holy people. That means all of us, because we're all holy. And, and you know, and, 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 and they start just Jerusalem. Well, you know, spiritually, we all are Jerusalem, you know. And, and they start explaining away spiritually. And it's wrong. You're taking something that's literal. You're giving it a subjective interpretation. And you're destroying the revelation of God. I wouldn't want to be you. 
Okay? The Bible is literal. Even when it speaks figurative language, it is meaning something literal that's taking place. You have to be careful. The Bible is infallible and inerrant in everything that it deals with. Not just prophecy. The Bible doesn't contradict any. It speaks objective truth. And the objective truth is always the same. Dr. Stoner, in his book, Science Speaks, and he used to teach here in um, um, Pasadena City College in the early 60s. He says this. Uh, Take the 13 claims about creation in Genesis chapter 1. The chance factor that Moses guessed the proper order in one, is one chance in 311,351,040. There is no way. This is just a normal book. Now, you can be relative in the culture and with language, and we've done that, corrupted it. Okay? Good's evil, evil's good, but you can't do that with numbers. A one's always the one, a ten's always a ten. Liars sure can't figure. Okay, so be careful. God from the beginning announced he would send his son, the Messiah, born of a virgin. The first prophecy is Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. Ladies, you provide the egg, the man provides the seed. The seed of the woman, it's a contradiction. That's the first prophecy of the virgin birth that God will send his son to die for the sins of the world. Wow. Matthew picks it up as a fulfillment, by the way. Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, a virgin shall bear a child. She call his name Emmanuel. God from the beginning said that he chose Abraham to make a nation, the nation of Israel, his people. No one else. He's never said that to anybody. In fact, Exodus 19, 5 says... Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. It goes back to Genesis 12, 2. Abraham, I will make a nation of you. Put them in Egypt. Seventy people. More than two and a half, three million came out. Wow. Wow. The city of Jerusalem is mentioned more than any other city in the Bible, as you know. It is the city of God, 776 times. By the way, it will be the capital of the world in the millennial kingdom. Some people may not like that, but that's tough. That's just the way it is. Thus says the Lord, I will turn, return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, the holy mountain, Zechariah 8, 3. He's talking about the kingdom age. God the Father sent his son to atone for the sins of the world. Where? L.A.? No. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Listen to Isaiah 53, 7 through 8. He was oppressed And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. 
It's talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now, the Jews say that speaks of the nation of Israel. So they spiritualize it. We're persecuted. That's how it's fulfilled. No, 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 no. That's literal about the Messiah. You see? But when re you reject God's revelation, then you have to subjectively interpret it, to rationalize it, right? Hmm. These are the particulars of the announcement. They're very limited to the Jews, to Jerusalem, okay? You can't apply them to anybody else. Next, notice the particular time of the announcement. In verse 25, <clears throat> the prophecy divided into three divisions. The first division is of seven weeks, in the middle of verse 25. The second division is of 62 weeks, the middle of 25 also. And the third division is one week, the beginning of 27. So you have seven and 62, that's 69, and one, 70. What a coincidence. It's literal, okay? Not relative, not subjective, it fits. Now, notice the prophecy has a starting point or a countdown. If you're predicting something in the future, then there's going to be a countdown if it indicates a countdown. And this particular prophecy does. The countdown starts with a specific command regarding Jerusalem, 25a, at the beginning, Jerusalem. It says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Literal. Can't apply it to anything else. The countdown is to be the, uh, to be the one must include other very specific factors. It says under turmoil. In verse 25 at the end it says the street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. So you have another factor being added to the prophecy. The prophecy is premised on 70 weeks, we've said. The number seven is the number of completeness. A lot of times Christians and preachers and teachers say the number seven is the number of perfection. It is not. It's the number of completeness. Seven days in the week, seven days in the music scale, then the eighth one begins, color, everything. Seven is completeness, not uh, perfection. The seven days were established by God in the week in Genesis 1. Now you realize in history there have been times when people have tried an eight-day week and, and it didn't work and it kind of exhausted and killed horses and everything else, Okay. The Sabbath rest, one, one day a week you rest. Okay, interesting. There was seven-year rest of the land in Leviticus 25, 1 through 7. In other words, every seventh year, the Jews were to let the land rest. Don't plow it. Let it rest. So it replenishes and it just rejuvenates, okay? And when they didn't do that, there was great consequences, okay? Now we know farming, rotating crops, all that. It's all part of it, Okay? There was a seven-year release of slaves or someone who owed a debt in Exodus 21-2 also. You would work for six years, pay it off, and then the seventh, you were free. Jacob, remember, fulfilled Rachel's week, seven years, Genesis 29-27. 
There was also seven Sabbaths of year, which made the 50th the year of Jubilee. Okay? A release of debts and all proper return to its rightful and original owner in Leviticus 25, 8 through 17. Moses chose 70 elders in Exodus 18. Seventy souls went down to Egypt in Exodus 1.5. The captivity of Israel was according to the number of years they violated the sabbatic year. Seventy multiplied by seven is 490 years. They violated the Sabbath for 70 years. Seven times 70, 490 years. Exactly. You find that in Second Chronicles thirty six twenty one. Now, notice the prophecy consists of a multiple of sevens of years, as we have stated, not days. It's easy to clear it up. If it consisted of days, the seventy sevens would have to have been fulfilled in one year. Four months and ten days from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, based on a 360-day calendar year. Okay? It didn't happen. Now, do your homework. Go back to Genesis, the flood. It is not based on the Gregorian calendar of 365. It's 360-day year. So when you deal with biblical interpretation, you must do it with the biblical year of 360-day year. All right? Very important. Now, if it consists in years as we say it does, then the multiples of seven would have been fulfilled in 490 years from the command, which we will demonstrate that that's exactly what took place. Once again, if the Bible was written by mere men with no greater gift than Plato, Sophocles, Aristotle or Herodotus or any other religious men, secular or whatever, uh, we must conclude then that prophecy are just simply coincidence and just a product of chance. But what is the chance of that? Very, very remote. How do you explain that the Bible is written over 1,600 years span? 1,600 years. For by 40 different authors, from kings to fishermen to statesmen to tax collectors to herdsmen to military generals and many other occupations. They're written in three languages containing 66 books, all having the central focus and theme of a redeemer, a savior, the son of God to die for the sins of the world. From Genesis to Revelation. The Old Testament's Hebrew. A little bit of Aramaic and Daniel, a little Aramaic words in the Gospels, and the whole New Testament in Greek. Those are the three languages. Okay? Dr. Stoner, taking these considerations, says again, taking the same chance of probability for the 13 items in Genesis 1 of 311 uh, million three hundred fifty-one thousand and forty. 
Where did Moses get the 13 things to arrange them in that order? You realize the order that Moses gave is very, very scientific. As you go through it, you've examined it. We did our study in Genesis, okay? He says, Did Moses know about dark nebulous so that he could write a perfect description of one in verse 2? That is absurd. For the greatest of the scientists, having many photographs of dark nebulous, never guessed one existed until about 40 years ago. When he's writing this, it is 1963. So if you take 40, it would be 1923. It is estimated that about 100 billion people lived from the day of Moses before anyone knew what his description meant. We should say then that he did not have more than one chance in a hundred billion of being able to describe the dark nebula. Now here's the kicker. If you refuse to believe in God, then you will be open to every lie just because you cannot accept God. And that's what has happened to the world. The evolutionary hypothesis of evolution through progression and through evolution from micro to macro and so on and so forth is a joke. There isn't enough time or chance factor to happen. The simple cell is so complex, there isn't enough time just for the simple cell. In other words, a dog never became a giraffe. Okay? Simple. The chance of error is built into the prophecy. And for that reason, God through Isaiah, the prophet, declares from chapter 40 of Isaiah on repeatedly to the pagan gods for them to predict the future. He says in Isaiah 41, 22, let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were. That we may consider them, another examine what they say, and know the latter end of them or declare to us things to come. Tell us of things so when they happen, then we, he says, I can declare you God. No one ever took him up on it. Because only God could tell the future. There are no secular or religious books having claims or present or past that they claim to be verified by history as fulfilled prophecy after their books. Not one. Only the Bible. Only the Old and New Testament. Nothing else. The Bible is proven historically, archaeologically, by manuscript evidence, science, and prophecy. Do you realize that we have over 5,000 manuscripts? Do you realize that the, the, it, the place of Sophocles, we only have about seven or ten? And no one ever doubts them. And they're about three or four hundred years after his birth. When we have 5,000 manuscripts and, 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 and the New Testament was written third, within the 30 years after Jesus died. We have greater manuscript evidence of the New Testament as well as the Old than anything else on earth. And yet if you reject God, you just, in your own pride, your own blindness, you say, well, I can't accept that. And you make all kinds of lame excuses, right? Why? Because you can't accept God. So God gives you over to the light.
God called Cyrus by name 150 years before his birth. Isaiah 44, 24 through 28, he has called God's shepherd to perform God's pleasure, declaring to Jerusalem to be built in the temple. He says, your foundation shall be built. Not maybe, I hope so, shall be built. 150 years before he's born, by name. Cyrus was said to conquer Babylon through the levee gates, deflecting the Euphrates River, Isaiah 45, 1 through 3, exactly. Not only does the Bible say that, but their own historical records verify that. Without firing an arrow, took Babylon down, Medo-Persia. Wow. God prophesied about the destruction of Tyre by Nebuchadnezzar, the ultimate fulfillment by Alexander the Great, scraping the rubble and dumping it into the sea and building a causeway out to the island. The prophecy is found in Ezekiel 26. What an incredible prophecy, because you have two men fulfilling it. The first one, Nebuchadnezzar, the last half, uh, Alexander the Great. Great time between them. Dr. Stoner, in his book, Science Speaks, on page 70 to 80, estimated the chance of Ezekiel having spoken this prophecy from his own knowledge and having it all come to pass is one in three times five times 500 times 10 times five times 20. Now, if you're mathematicians, you know it's a big number. You wish you had that in the bank. This is one in 75 million or one in 7.5 to 10 to the seventh power. I mean, there isn't a chance of coincidence, ladies and gentlemen, at all. If Ezekiel had looked at Tyre in his day and made these seven predictions in human wisdom, these estimates mean there would have been only one chance in 75 million for all of them to come to pass. Two different men, Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great. Wow. It is nothing for God to predict anything in the future. He predicted the birthplace of the Messiah, Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. He predicted the rejection of the Messiah by his own people in John 1.11. And many other things. It's no big deal for God. So this is the particular time of the announcement. So you have the people, the place, the Jews, Jerusalem, and the time. Very specific. Now, thirdly, let's look at the particular fulfillment of the announcement. We'll tie it together. We're going to focus primarily on 26, as that ties to 69. Then we're going to just kind of touch on 27 lightly. Notice first... The prophetic decrees regarding Jerusalem that can be considered are only three in history. First, you have the decree of Cyrus in, three, in 538 B.C. You find that in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, and Ezra 5, 13 through 17. Now, we've been in our study of Zechariah, so you're familiar with this right now, so it's kind of good. The decree was limited, though, to the Lord's house and the vessels of gold and silver. The work was halted by false accusations of rebellion and a plan for independence, Ezra 4.21 says. Uh, Sambalat, Tobiah, all the rebellion of the Samaritans, and they accused them of, of all this, okay? And they halted the building. That's where Haggai and Zechariah come in. 
The second decree is of Darius in 517 BC, and you find that in Ezra 6, 1 through 3. But this decree was a proclamation affirming what Cyrus had already commanded. Remember, they stopped the building, false accusations. So this decree was still limited to the house of the Lord because all they did was search the chronicles and find out that he did decree this so the, the cessation of the work was lifted. Okay? But there is a third one, the decree by Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. You find this in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. The decree there for the first time, was a command to restore and build Jerusalem, the walls and the gates, exactly what it says here. Okay? They line up perfectly. The decree was in troublesome time. There's another factor. Nehemiah chapter 4 makes this very clear. Troublesome time. This decree is the only one that can be the starting point for the 70 weeks of Daniel. March 14, 445 B.C. Now, the first division of the prophecy marked the end of the Old Testament canon also. Verse 25, the seven weeks multiplied by seven equals 49. The last prophet to speak under inspiration of the Holy Spirit was Malachi, 49 years. Then you have 400 years of silence. No prophet spoke until John the Baptist when he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The voice crying in the wilderness. The second division of the prophecy indicated the first coming of the Messiah, the Prince. There's a distinction. First is Messiah, the Prince. Notice in your text, verse 25. The 62 weeks multiplied by 7 equals 434 years. The addition of the 7 weeks, or 49 years, and the 62 weeks of 434 comes to 483 years. So the 69 multiplied by that comes to that. What does that fulfill? Until Messiah, the Prince. So in other words, it tells us the beginning point and the finishing point. Okay? So you can't make this up. <clears throat> so you're holding this prophecy literally to what it's saying. It's giving you a beginning point and an ending point. He says, who would be cut off, but not for himself. Now it's real specific. This is Jesus who died. He was cut off for himself because he became sin for us. All right? He wasn't crucified because he had sin. He had no sin. He was crucified because he died in our place and he took our place. Very specific. Sir Robert Anderson wrote an incredible treatise on this. The book is called The Coming Prince dealing with the 70 weeks of Daniel, with all the calendars and everything else. An incredible work. Now, there are some who reject it, and I'll have some words towards the end of that. You have, some, uh, you have to face a couple of difficulties. But it's a great book. I would encourage it. Now, notice now the starting point. 
being March 14, okay, so we believe this is it, so let's, 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 let's test it out. March 14, 445 BC, if you project it forward 483 years to the day, or if you multiply it in a 360 day year, it would come up to 173,880 days. So whether you want to go through the years or the days, it'll still work out the same. That day brings us to Sunday, the 6th of April, 32 A.D. What a coincidence. It falls right on the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ at Jerusalem on the donkey on Palm Sunday. I'm really not that smart to make this up. <laughs> Matthew 21, verse 1 through 11 confirms this. Luke 19, 28 through 48 confirms this. The prophecy of Zechariah was clearly fulfilled as Jesus wrote in as king, priest, and prophet. Right now we're in Zechariah. In fact, we're gonna, when we get back, we'll start in chapter 7. Chapters, uh, I'm sorry, we will start in chapter 7, but the prophecy found in Zechariah 9.9. Listen to it. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. Who in their right mind will get on a donkey that's never been ridden? Only the creator, his creation submits itself to him. Too specific. You can't make this stuff up. What were they saying? Hosanna, save now, save now. Because the Jews saw the present age, the age to come. They never saw the church age. They thought he was going to set up, knock off Rome and set up the kingdom. That's why the disciples were always arguing who is the grace in the kingdom. The dirty dozen. Now the second coming to reign is in Zechariah verse 10 of chapter 9. The very next verse gives you the second coming. Zechariah 9.9, the first coming, Palm Sunday. Verse 10, the second coming to set up the kingdom. The distinction is very, very, very clear there. Now, the Messiah, the prince, and Messiah to be cut off, but not for himself. The, verse 25, as well as the beginning of verse 26. Both of these refer to Jesus Christ, the one coming to die for the sins of the world as the substitute for us. Now, notice there is a reference to a second prince in verse 26, the middle. And the people of the prince who is to come is different than Messiah Prince. The prince here was the Roman general Titus. The prophecy was that he would destroy the city and the sanctuary, verse 26 tells us. All right? Your Bible says the same thing mine does. The Jews rebelled in 66 AD against Rome. Titus came into the city and burned the sanctuary with fire, looted all of its gold, and removed every stone in 70 AD, just as Jesus predicted in Matthew 24 too. If you go up the, to, the, to the coffee shop, when you get to the top of the steps, look to the right when you get to the top. There's a picture there of the Cheesemaker Valley in Jerusalem where the Romans threw all those stones off the temple right there. They're still there today. Exactly. Not one stone was left upon another. The last stronghold, as you know, of the Jews was Masada. It fell in 73 AD. 
by mass suicide. The um, Israeli army used to take every graduating class up to Masada in years past, and they would say, never another Masada. They embrace the Samson complex. We'll take the whole world with us. They don't go up there anymore like that, but that used to be, well, they used to do that years ago, okay? But they still have the same complex, Samson. No more suicide. We'll never take our lives. We will defend ourselves to the death. Wow. Now the result of being totally destroyed, notice verse 26, the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. The flood and desolation refers to the result of Titus' destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The Jewish people were dispersed throughout the world just as Jesus predicted in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Without a homeland for 2,000 years. Then it says to those who would object to this prophecy, because many do, then they have to face certain things. If they reject what I'm saying about this prophecy and the specific factors, or even would question that this in any way indicates about the prophetical fulfillment of Palm Sunday. And let's just say that, that they're right. Then, let's just say that we're completely off, our calculations are just made up, and it's nonsense, and that the work of Sir Robert Anderson is just unacademic. Okay, let's buy that. You still have to deal with the words of Jesus about the triumphal entry. In Luke 19, verse 41 to 44, listen carefully. In verse 41, Jesus was broken hard over the rejection of him by the Jews, the nation. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Jesus pointed out the prophetic day of Palm Sunday being fulfilled and they should have known it. Listen, verse 42 says, if you had known, this is Jesus speaking. If you had known even you, especially in this your day, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Wow. A very special day, a day they should have known and they did not. Called Palm Sunday. In verse 43 and 4 of Luke 19, Jesus prophesied about the destruction through Titus in 70 AD also. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you a stone upon another. Very specific, confirming Daniel. In fact, Jesus condemned the nation for her spiritual blindness. At the end of 44, it says, Because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, Jesus is saying, this was prophetic, it's fulfilled today. Now, if Daniel's not talking about it, are you going to deny Zechariah 9.9 also? They're both talking about the very same thing. Wow. 
Now, understanding then that this prophecy fulfilled on Palm Sunday, let me just give you a little extension for the seven-year tribulation if you plan on being here. Verse 27. The third division of the prophecy is yet future the last week, the 70th week. The prophetic clock has stopped for almost 2,000 years during the church age. The clock will once again run for the last seven years of tribulation and great tribulation, the final week of the prophecy. In 1948, Israel declared its independence for the third time, something no nation has ever done without a homeland for 2,000 years. In the war of 1967, Israel took back the city of Jerusalem for the first time, and they were able to go to the Wailing Wall. Some of you have gone to Israel, the Jaffa Gate, you see all the bullets there where they entered in. In the war of 1973, we almost saw the possibility of the Russian attack against Israel. As President Nixon received a phone call from the Russians to act promptly to stop the war, which resulted in the salt talks by Kissinger, if you remember. Some of you have not even born then, okay? Israel was continuously been attacked accused and targeted by the PLO in years past, by Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, now ISIS, and many others. Iran has promised to destroy Israel and has the capability now to do so, thanks to Obama. But she will defend herself regardless of the United Nothings or anybody else. Okay? It makes no difference. Time will reveal if this is the event that will usher in the tribulation and great tribulation that we are seeing right now. We thought it almost happened in 73. There have been other occasions, Desert Storm, because Russia will attack Israel from the north with their confederacy of Islamic nations. Read Ezekiel 38 and 39. That will trigger the rapture at the same time, the attack upon Israel, and the Antichrist appearance all at the same time. So the last week is divided into two parts. The first half consists of three and a half years known as tribulation. Israel will initiate a covenant with the Antichrist. Look at verse 27. Then he will confirm a covenant with many. The length is seven years for one week. One times seven, seven. You have to be consistent. The second half also consists of three and a half years, known as the Great Tribulation. That's the last half. And by the way, the Bible gives us in years, months, 42 months, and days, 1,260 uh, days. So it's confirmed that it's based on a 360-day calendar year, okay? Now, the Antichrist will break the covenant by stopping the sacrifice of the temple, and he will build that temple for the Jews. Look what it says. But in the middle of the week, he, the Antichrist, shall bring in an end to the sacrifice and offerings. There are no sacrifices right now. There is no temple right now. The Antichrist will build that temple. The Antichrist will declare himself God. Look at Daniel 27. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. That's the Antichrist. Jesus prophesied by that in Matthew 24, 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, chapter 12, as well as here, flee to the wilderness. Who? Israel. 
the Jewish nation, not us. Paul the Apostle describes the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 through 12, where he will build a temple, declare himself God, and demand that every person worship him in the book of Revelation with a mark on the right hand of the forehead. The Antichrist will be destroyed by the coming of Jesus Christ with his church. He says, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So in other words, he will have full reign for three and a half years, the last three and a half, until Jesus returns and destroys him. The consistency of the prophecy must be followed. The first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy has been fulfilled to the letter by the literal interpretation of years, multiple of sevens. We had to be consistent in the last seven years, and it fits perfectly. In fact, the scriptures tell us that Israel will gather the weapons from the battle when Russia attacks and God destroys five, six of that army. And they will gather the weapons and use them for fuel for seven years. Not seven years in one day, but seven years. Wow. The Bible is God's inspired word, ladies and gentlemen, received and recorded by men who were carried along by the Spirit of God, not of their own impulse or origin. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17 tells us that men, the Scriptures are all inspired by God, profitable for doctrine, correction, and instruction, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Second Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 19 to 21 says, The men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin. In other words, they didn't come of themselves. But they were carried along by the Spirit of God so that what you have is God's inerrant, infallible word. Listen to John Wolvert, one of the leading scholars on uh, prophetic end times. Um, in his book, Every uh, Prophecy in the Bible, quote, The revelation of prophecy in Scripture serves as an important evidence that the Scriptures are accurate in their interpretation of the future. Because approximately half of the prophecy of the Bible have already been fulfilled in a literal way, it gives a proper intellectual basis for assuming that prophecy yet to be fulfilled will likewise have a literal fulfillment. You have to be consistent. So the heart of Jesus, as we look at his ministry, was broken by the rejection of his people as he wept over Jerusalem again Matthew 23, 37-39 says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall not see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Israel calling upon Christ at the end of the tribulation period. As he comes to set up his kingdom. Wow. Broken hearted. Jesus knew the nation would reject him. And accept the Antichrist. He said it. Listen to John 5.43. I have come in my father's name. And you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name. Him you will receive. That's not Daffy Duck. That's the Antichrist. Paul confirmed this to the Romans. Listen to Romans 11.25. The scriptures fit perfectly. For I do not want or desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, 
lest you should be wise in your own opinion and blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile come in. The fullness of the Gentile is the full number of people to be saved in the church before the Lord removes his church. Once he removes his church, then God deals with Israel again. So we reject replacement theology. Replacement theology says that God is through with Israel and that the church takes all the promises of Israel. I reject it. It's blasphemous. It's not even, uh, uh, it's not even an excusable error. It's very clear in Scripture that God is not through with Israel. The 69-week prophecy of Daniel deals with the coming of the Messiah on Palm Sunday, ladies and gentlemen. Listen. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, the coal, the foal of a donkey. Matthew 21, verse 4 and 5, pointing back to the prophecy of Zechariah 9:9 being fulfilled. Either way, you have to accept this, whether you like the numbers or not. You have to deal with the words of Jesus Christ. This is the particular fulfillment of the announcement. What an incredible prophecy. And he died for you. He died for me. The prophecy of the arrival of the Messiah to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is characterized by the particulars of the announcement, the particular time of the announcement, and the particular fulfillment of the announcement. And maybe you don't know Jesus Christ. God has brought you here to be saved. To repent of your sins. Maybe you're over in the, on the radio listening. Somewhere in the world. God loves you. He died for you. Over the internet. Know that you can never work your way to heaven. You cannot earn it. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We must repent of our sins and believe what God says about us, that we are sinners, falling short of the glory of God. We are good for nothing except for trouble and sin. And unless we have a change of heart, we will never see the kingdom of God. It's by grace through faith that not of yourself, it's a gift of God. But you have to decide where you're going to spend eternity. God doesn't decide that. You do. No one will ever be able to blame God and say, you damn me to hell. Nope. You send yourself there by rejecting me. Lord, thank you for your loving goodness. We pray that you deal with our hearts. Lift every person to you, Lord. You minister to them and that they're going to call on your name, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God is here to save you. It's called prayer repentance. Right where you sit, over the radio, wherever you are in the world, or the internet. Right now, if you believe what the Bible says about you, that you're a sinner, separated from God because of sin, and that you believe that Jesus became sin for you who knew no sin, that you might be made the righteousness of God in Him and He would forgive your sins, then you can call upon Him right now. This is your prayer to Him to save you. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.